Open your Bibles, if you will, to Acts chapter 1. It might not have been readily uh, evident because I didn't bring any attention to it, uh, but we have been tracking with the scriptures since Resurrection Sunday. Um, after Resurrection Sunday, and oftentimes we treat, the, we treat the story of Jesus like this. We treat it like he, he came and he died on the cross, and then he rose from the dead, and then, like, that was it. It's over, it's done, story's closed, book's over. Uh, Jesus like ascended the next day or something, but that's not what happened. In Acts chapter 1, verse 3, we read that Jesus hung out for about 40 days. And over 40 days, he taught them about the kingdom of God. I find that to be a very important thing to, to point out. There's a lot of stuff Luke could have recorded. He could have said they taught, he taught them about the atonement, or he taught them about sanctification or justification, or uh, uh, the doctrine of inerrancy, or any, any number of things that Jesus could have been teaching the disciples about for 40 days, and yet Luke records this. He taught us about the kingdom of God. And over the past 40 or so days, that's what we've been focusing on, on the kingdom of God, trying to, to bring that into focus for us so that we can get excited about it, because the end of the story is pretty grand, uh, the end of the story is pretty amazing, and God is inviting all of us to have a place, to, to stake out our claim in the kingdom of God by his grace, by his power. And so after this, uh, after this time, this 40-day period of Jesus' teaching, he ascends into heaven for about 15, well, more like 17 to 18 Hundred years, this was a high holy day in the church. It passes very little fanfare amongst us. We pay a lot of attention to Jesus' nativity, to his birth. We pay a lot of attention to his resurrection. I suspect largely, and this is being, me being a cranky old man, um, but I suspect largely that's because we get a day off of work and not so much that we really care about worshiping Jesus. Because the ascension is an essential doctrine of the church. It was a feast day for years and years and years, and we've forgotten it. I don't have any other explanation for it. But the, the ascension, which is our focus today, this is Ascension Sunday. This is the day that the church sort of just venerates Christ for his ascension, and we focus on that. And that is a scriptural piece uh, uh, Peter in Acts chapter 2, as he's closing down the very first sermon after Pentecost, says that the ascension was a critical fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus did. Paul talks about in Ephesians about how the ascension is Jesus rescuing us from the kingdoms of darkness. Peter ties it to salvation itself in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 3. Uh, the early church wrote it into their creeds. For a long time, we didn't have Bibles. For a long time, people didn't have uh, the ability to even read, even if they had a Bible. And for a long time, we didn't have phones with apps on them so we could just look things up when I say turn to Acts chapter 1. And so what did people do? They memorized doctrine, and they called that creeds. And the end of one of the creeds, uh, the two most important creeds of the ancient world were the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed. And both of them make explicit that he ascended to the right hand of the Father from there to judge the quick and the dead. If you are a Rich Mullins fan, he wrote a fantastic song called Creed, in which he recites that creed. St. Augustine, the early Christian thinker, very important to us, says that the feast of the Ascension is the feast that confirms all of the other feasts that Christians have together. 
For unless the Savior ascended to heaven, his nativity means nothing. Christmas, meaningless without this Sunday. His passion would have borne no fruit. His cross, meaningless without the ascension. And his resurrection would have been useless to us without the ascension. And so I have a very specific goal in mind today. I want to get you pumped up about the ascension of Jesus. I want you to flip open your calendar app on your phone and flip forward to May 25th, 2017, which is the ascension day for next year. And I want you to plan to take time off of work. It's a big deal. For no other reason than to gather your family and to gather with your church family that you might remember the day that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father because that is critically tied not just to the story of Jesus but critically tied to your salvation and how God rescued you from the dominions of darkness. So if you look in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, hopefully you're already there. Acts chapter 1, I'm going to begin with verse 9. This is the story. This is what happened. And uh, he, that is Jesus, after he had said these things, and, and just as a backstory, he told them that he was going to give them the Holy Spirit, and so they needed to go on to Jerusalem and to wait for the Holy Spirit to come. So after he had instructed them uh, to do that, he said those things. As they were looking on, so they're watching Jesus, Jesus, he is lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, Two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heavens? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go. This is, if you can imagine it, a moment of great wonder and awe. I mean, they have seen a lot of, they've seen Jesus do a lot of crazy stuff. Right? I mean, think of all the crazy things that Jesus did. He's walked on water. He's silenced a storm. He's picked up people whose legs were all like, you know, I just was thinking like shriveled. What, what's the movie? The, they're all shriveled. And Laura knows what I'm talking about. This is a marriage moment. I apologize. Um, you know, they've seen him heal blind people. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him die. They've seen him raise from the dead. And now they're sitting there watching and they see the Shekinah glory. That is, it, God must hide himself from us. We can't look upon him lest we die. This is why Moses, who was holy and in God's presence, was not allowed to look at him. And, and in the Old Testament, when God appeared to the people, he appeared in something that was kind of like a cloud. But because clouds reflect light and God is in the center of that cloud, you can imagine how bright this cloud cloud is. So there's this, this immense bright cloud that comes from nowhere and sort of grabs a hold of Jesus. And his, Jesus is just like rising up into the air. And I mean, I don't know what my response would be to seeing that happen other than holy cats. Like, I, I don't, you know, I mean, it's just, it's awesome. It's wonderful. But you can imagine the sort of crestfallenness that the disciples would have felt as well. Because Jesus was with them. I mean, they're walking with him and talking with him. And when they had a question, like they didn't look in their Bibles. They didn't call Jordan up because he might know the answer. They didn't go on Wikipedia. They went to the Son of God. How often have you had a question? You could just call Jesus up and be like, hey, Jesus, I got this question real quick. And he can give it to you, right? This is incredible. And now Jesus is he's gone. He's gone. And as they're watching Jesus go up, he's not even totally disappeared from their eyes because it says there in verse 11, um, uh, in verse 9, um, as they're 
no, in verse 10, as they're gazing into heaven, as he's going up, behold, two men. So these two angels appear as they're watching Jesus go up, and they ask him the question, what are you idiots doing standing here? It's my paraphrase. Why are you standing here watching? And, and I just want to be like, are you seeing this? Why are, what do you mean, why are we watching this? Like, this is the most incredible thing I've ever seen. And the, the, these, these messengers from God, these, these, uh, these, these angelic beings say, go and do what he told you to do. On a side note, how often have we said, God, what do you want me to do next? Anyone? I don't know what to do, Lord. What do you want? And he says, hey, dummy, I wrote a book for you. We're always looking for miracles. When God says, I've, got, I've told you what to do, care about one another, visit one another, care for one another, preach the God. I mean, that's a side sermon, but I, just, I was sitting here thinking of myself as the disciples, and I was, I was thinking about what it would look like to see all of that happen, and then have an angel say, hey, what are you doing standing here watching Jesus go? And I'm like, because it's Jesus, and he's flying. Go do what he told you to do. Go do what he commanded you to do. But it comes with a promise, doesn't it? The end there in verse 11. That what you have seen Jesus do is a promise. It's a promise that he will return again one day. And in his return, he will bring all of the stuff that he's been teaching you. All that kingdom of God stuff, that five, these past five sermons that I've, uh, that I've preached. All about the kingdom of God. God's going to bring all of that to completion. He's going to do it. But right now, it's time for you to get busy about the work that he's prepared you to do. We don't see the promise of his return in his birth. We don't see the promise of his return in his death. We do not see the promise of his return in his resurrection. We see the promise of his return in his ascension. Because now he's at the right hand of the Father and we await the one from the right hand of the Father who will come to earth to bring about the transformation, the kingdom of God that he's promised. And so the essential uh, doctrine of the ascension is so important because it is the house of the promise of the return of Jesus Christ. Without the ascension, there's no promise. It's a critical doctrine, critically important. The ascension also allows and prepares us, readies us to be about the business that he has sent us to do. Now, we'll talk a lot about the Holy Spirit next Sunday because next Sunday is Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the people and so I don't want to focus on that, but I rather want to focus on the ways in which the ascension, the ascension is tied to our salvation itself. In Acts chapter 5, uh, we read uh, verses 32, I'm going to read a bunch of verses, so if, you are flipper, if you're a fast flipper, uh, then go ahead and flip. If you're not, then write it down. This is Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 32, 30 through 32. It says, um, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, the resurrection, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree, which is the crucifixion. And God exalted him to to his right hand, there's the ascension, as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. Now I want you to hear, as Peter is preaching the gospel and he's sort of bringing it all to a conclusion and he wants to tell everybody about what Jesus has done, he's included three key events, three key moments that bring about two important things that are essential for salvation. He says Jesus died, Jesus raised, and Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. And it isn't until we have the ascension that we have two things. Do you notice what they were? Repentance 
and forgiveness. Until we have both death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we do not have repentance because we don't have the giving of the Holy Spirit. And we don't have forgiveness because we do not have a high priest in holy places, which is where Hebrews comes in to kind of fill this out. Because we might ask the question, why is it so important that Jesus ascend to the right hand of the Father in order for us to have uh, the full forgiveness of sins? Didn't he accomplish all of that on the cross? Not according to the scriptures. In Hebrews chapter 8, and you can again write this down, Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, of course, all of Hebrews is kind of after this whole subject, but this is just one poignant verse. Uh, It says, Now the point that we are saying is this, that we have a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in holy places. Now, if you're new to church, and, and so some of this is kind of foreign to you and you're trying to gra- grasp it with your mind, that's, that's, all, that's all right. Um, what he is saying here is that in the Old Testament, when God got the people together and he's building a people unto himself and he says, I want you to be a holy people, the immediate question we should ask ourselves is, how in the world is that going to happen? Because I love you all, but you're a bunch of sinners. Right? And we're no different than they were back then. And so we have to figure out how is it that these sinful people are going to come into the presence of a holy, perfect, and righteous God. And God says, well, that has to happen by a holy intermediary. Somebody has to stand between the people and between God because he is holy and they are not. And so God institutes a high priest. A person to whom the people could bring their sacrifices because maybe they committed a sin or maybe they needed healing or maybe they just wanted to praise God. They just wanted to thank him for all that he had done. And so God instituted the, the, the Aaron and his children and, and they had to go through ritual washings and they had to sacrifice for their own sins and they had to wear certain kind of clothes and they had to wear certain kind of turbans. All of these different things that they had to do in order to be able to come near to God so that they could intercede on behalf of the people. All of that work is but a pale comparison to God's ultimate plan. And God's ultimate plan is Jesus. Because Jesus is perfect. He doesn't need to sacrifice for sins. He doesn't need to wash anything off of himself. He is the perfect lamb of God. And what we read in this text is that we have a high priest. And that high priest is able to minister directly in the presence of God. So that when you are in need of something, when you are in need, especially as we're talking here, of forgiveness of sins, you are not able to go to directly to God because you're the sinner and God's the Holy One. And, but now we have an intermediary, one who mediates the covenant for us so that we can speak to God directly so that through Jesus we might have the forgiveness of sins. Remember... Um, Remember in John chapter 14, Jesus says, he begins with this, these words, and you, and you know these words. Um, I am going to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may also be. Just get it like, ah, oh, like that's good, isn't it good? A few verses later in verse 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Before this, you haven't seen the Father or known the Father, but you have seen me. And because you have seen me, you now see the Father and know the Father. Now, I, I think about this, this, this phrase for a second. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Y'all, y'all have heard that before? It's familiar with you? What does that mean? Because before this week, I always thought of it as meaning like I need to believe in Jesus. And if I don't believe in Jesus and follow Jesus and keep his commandments, then 
um, I'm trying to walk a different path. And so, and so because of that, I wouldn't be accepted by God. But I think that there's something deeper at work here. Because all of chapter 14 is about Jesus going to God to prepare the kingdom of God so that he can bring the kingdom of God. He can bring the redemptions. And so, so speaking about the way, the truth, and the life is directly tied to Jesus' very ascension. And it got me thinking, man, there's no way for me to talk to God. I am a terrible person. Ask my wife. Awful. And there is no avenue for me to go to a holy and perfect God except through Jesus Christ. And that was true through the cross. That was true through the resurrection. And it's especially true now. I pray in the name of Jesus because Jesus has God's ear. I've used this illustration before, but you know, if, you, if I don't know any of these little kids, but Emery grabs one of their hands and brings it to me, Brings it to me. That was. I didn't want to say him. Brings uh, somebody to me and says, This is my best friend. Like, I love this person. Can I have them over? Of course you can have them over, right? You've got access to the house. You've got access to me. You've got access to our, our pantry, such as it is, because the daughter has brought you. This is a pale comparison to what we have going on here. The, the Son allows us access to the throne room of God. And because the Son has ascended to the right hand of the Father, because he's in the presence of God forevermore, he's able to give us that direct access. And let me pause over this for a second, because one of the huge points of Hebrews is to say that the reason that Jesus came, the reason that he gave up Uh, the glories of heaven, the reason that he encased his divinity in flesh, the reason he took on the humility of being made human was so that he could understand what it's like. I know what it's like to go through certain things mentally, but unless you've actually experienced it, empathy is really difficult. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I, I think of this story the story of chapter 7 of, of Acts, of the first person who is killed uh, for Jesus Christ, his name is Stephen. He's a man full of spirit. He was a deacon in the church. And he goes, he's dragged before the court, and, and they ask him why he's doing and preaching and causing all this ruckus about Jesus. And he preaches to them a message, man. It's just fire and brimstone. It's right on. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And it infuriates them. I mean, they are so angry. Get ready for that if you want to be preachers. And they drag him out in the street, and they begin to stone him. You familiar with this practice of stoning? No, you're not, right? Like, the, no, none of us are. Like, the idea of stoning is the most horrific idea of death. That means that people are picking up stones, and this is how you die. They break your bones until you, the bones puncture your internal organs, and you bleed out. Like, that's, that's stoning, they're slamming things on your legs, breaking your legs, slamming things on your chest so that your ribs will cave in. I mean, the pain is excruciating. The only hope that you have is that somebody hits you hard enough in the head that you're out. This is stoning. They drag Stephen out in the street and crowds gather around him and they pick up stones and they're just slamming stones upon this man. And it says there that Stephen in this moment is full of the Holy Spirit. And he looks up and he says, I see the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
And the rocks are raining down upon him, crushing his bones, piercing his, his organs. He can feel the pain of, e- of each stone and the, the humiliation as people are cursing and spitting and berating him. And he says, Father, receive my spirit. The last words out of his mouth are, do not hold their sins against them. What kind of faith is that? What kind of power is that? And what I love about this scene isn't, isn't just the faith of Stephen. It's that what he sees as God opens the heavens up and gives him this vision is Jesus who is looking down on him. And Jesus who is saying, I know what that feels like. This is Mother's Day. And Mother's Day for me is, is a day that is very weird because I feel like, because we got mothers here who are expecting like a really nice mother's sermon. I'm just talking about people getting killed. Uh, but I've been in church a long time um, and I have had so many people that I know that don't go to church on Mother's Day because they have lost their children. We had a wonderful uh, Miriam wouldn't come to church on Sunday because her children are gone and it breaks her heart. Other people who want to have children, and I, I didn't know, that I, I, can't, I can't even empathize with this. I didn't know this until we got married and Laura would tell me stories about how her like, body like, wants children, which I don't get. It's really weird and kind of gross. But like, she can feel it like a physical need and I know women who have that, but because they weren't get, because they didn't get married, or because they didn't uh, uh, because they didn't were just weren't able to physically. We have a Savior who says, as rocks are falling, I know what that's like. I know what pain is like. I know what betrayal is like. I know what it's like to lose someone. I know what it's like to lose everything. I know what it's like to die. The Savior says, I've been there and I've done it. And he is now the minister in the high places. He is the one that you pray to. And he leans over to God and says, this is, this is ours. And I remember what that felt like. And I need us to send the Spirit upon this person so that in the midst of their pain and their sorrow and their suffering, they know that they are not alone because God doesn't remove the pain, the sorrow, and the suffering. The world is just as broken today as it was 2,000 years ago. And it's just as broken today as it will be tomorrow. But the message of the cross is that's not the end of the story. And while you are on the cross, while the stones are raining down, you have a minister who has ascended to the high place, to the right hand of the Father who says, I know, I know, I know. The ascension is a critical doctrine that if we forget it, we lose sight of the glory of the story of Jesus Christ and all that he is doing for you right now. Right now. The scriptures talk about the ascension as though it is a coronation moment. If you can imagine a king, a a prince who is now going to ascend to the position of king, they, they go down and there's all these heaven, there's all this court around them, all the people dressed in their, their best and they go up the stairs and they, they sit down on the throne and they're, and they're given that crown. This is the image of Jesus in the ascension. 
When we say the right hand of the Father, I don't want you to imagine that what I'm saying is that there's a throne and God is on it, and then there's this other person, Jesus, who's kind of on the side of him. That's, that, that's not what's being communicated here. Next week's Pentecost, the week after that's Trinity Sunday. We'll talk about the doctrine of the Trinity more fully then. But the, the phrase right hand is simply a phrase that means power. It means authority. It means to rule. It means to reign. And so when we say Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, we're not saying that he is standing at the right hand. We're saying that he has taken all of the power that was denied him, that he denied himself as he walked on earth. That all the the authorities and rulers and powers, all the sin, all the brokenness, all these things that have sort of subjected themselves across the earth and sort of running free as they will. Now Jesus is in the position of power and authority and we simply await the time when he exercises that fully and crushes his enemies. And in the meantime, in the meantime, he's ministering to you. And as fantastic and wonderful and flawless a minister as I am, isn't he much better? Don't look at me like that. That is a terrible look. Everything that we have here is such a pale comparison to the glory of Jesus. He is the point. He He is the one. He is the perfect one. He's the one that never lets us down. He's the one who, who stands by our side when we suffer. He is the one who reigns and rules throughout the heavens. And we know that there are promises that have been made that are not fulfilled yet. You will still experience brokenness in your life. There is a day, though, when all of that will come to an end. It will meet its final completion in the glory of the coming of the Son of God. For as we saw him rise, so we will see him descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with a trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ, we read, will rise first. And then he will catch all of us who are left. And so we will be together and with the Lord forever. This is the, this is the good news, right? And so as we think about... Um, the stretch that we have been walking down of Jesus from his birth until his passion, until uh, his resurrection, until today, his ascension. I ask the question of what do we do with the ascension? What does that mean for us right here, right now, aside from all of the things that we've already talked about? I think of Colossians chapter 3. And this is kind of where, where I want to end this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 4. It says this. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, Appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I love, I love this whole passage. I, I love the words here because it has certain promises that we've been raised above all of this. And so because we have been raised above all of this, we should set our eyes and fix our eyes on those things that matter because the world is so quick to tear our minds off of the things of God, isn't it? So quick to lose focus, so quick to be sidetracked, so quick 
to forget the truth, just live day by day. But if we keep in mind not just the cross, not just the resurrection, but the ascension. If we keep in mind that Jesus Christ is standing in the seat of glory and power and that our life, everything that we are and everything that we desire and everything that we're pursuing and everything that we're hoping for is kept with him. It's with Christ and all we await is that moment when finally the sky rends open and Jesus returns and then the glory that is his is shared with us. Man, wouldn't that change the way you lived your life today? That's your focus. Wouldn't that change Monday morning when you go to that job that you don't like very much? Because the job doesn't matter. And the paycheck doesn't matter. What matters is how in that moment, in that day, in that, that seemingly meaningless events, you are able to bear witness to the faithfulness and glory of Jesus Christ. Because you have fixed your eyes on the things that matter and not the things that don't. Because you have spent your time and your thoughts and your prayers on the ascension of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have as we find ourselves waiting for the day. This morning as we come to a conclusion, I want us to focus on worship. I want us to focus on this song and about how over the next week, we can fix our eyes more firmly upon Jesus Christ. How we could say with Paul that my life is hidden with Christ. It's hidden with God. And everything that I am and everything that I desire and everything that I want, everything that I work for, really all of it has to do with him and his glory. As we worship together, let's make that our thought. Make that our prayer. Make that our life's goal. Because as you leave this place, our hope is that you aren't just sort of leaving church behind. Like this is your Sunday morning thing. That's why we say share Jesus, right? That is what we're about. You are going out into the world as a missionary. You're a missionary at Schlotzky's. You're a missionary at WMU. You're a missionary in high school. You're a missionary selling cups. You're a missionary serving as a nurse. You're a missionary working at a bank. Right? Your job, as Paul said, isn't the thing that defines you. What defines you is your life that's hidden with Jesus Christ. You're a missionary out there. And he sent you out into that world to tell other people and to let them know this great and glorious gospel that's transformed you. Make that your prayer as we stand and sing this song.